According to the Talmud, it was at this point in time that a mysterious group of Jewish leaders known as the Anshe Knesset Hagdolah, the men of the Great Assembly, led by Ezra, formalized the rituals and liturgy of communal Jewish prayer. For Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik, this was a response to the end of prophecy, for it is prayer that is prophecy's parallel. Welcome to Bible 365, episode 196, The Last Prophet and the Rebirth of Prayer. I'm Mayor Soloveitchik. There is an exquisite essay by Rabbi Emanuel Feldman titled God and Mrs. Cooperman. Therein, the author describes how as a child, growing up in the synagogue led by his father, he experienced a congregant who truly excelled at davening, the Yiddish word for prayer. Her name was Mrs. Cooperman, and she uttered every word of the Sidur, the Jewish prayer book, with complete devotion. When she pronounced the beginning of the blessing, Baruch Atah Hashem, blessed art thou God, there truly was a thou to whom she spoke. The presence of the Almighty was very real to her. But Mrs. Kuberman did not fully understand that different parts of the liturgy are intended for different times, some for the Sabbath, some for Rosh Chodesh, the day of the new moon, some for the holidays. Rabbi Feldman writes, quote, Mrs. Cooperman, the elderly widow who attended my father's synagogue in Baltimore, was every rabbi's ideal congregant. She never spoke during services. She davened meticulously, caressing every word. She listened avidly to the rabbi's sermons, gave charity generously, observed Shabbat and Kashrut, and honored those who studied Torah. There was only one problem. Other than her ability to read Hebrew, she was completely unlettered and unlearned. That is why, in fact, she never skipped a word of davening. She was unable to distinguish between prayers that are recited on regular Shabbat and those which are recited only when Shabbat coincides with Rosh Chodesh or Yom Tov or Chanukah. The net result was that on every single Shabbat of the year, she recited every single prayer on every single page of the services. My mother, who always sat next to her, would gently remind her, this you don't have to say because today is not Rosh Chodesh. Mrs. Kuperman would smile. I ask you, what is so terrible if I do say it? If it isn't Rosh Chodesh today, soon it will be. So it really makes no difference. End quote. Rabbi Feldman further describes how as a child, he and his brother thought Mrs. Cooperman hilarious. They looked down on her and her lack of intellectual understanding. Their mirth went so far that they thought of her when they encountered one calendrical conjoining in the Jewish year, the Sabbath of Hanukkah, which also, on some years, falls out on Rosh Chodesh, the day of the new moon. Thus, on that day, so many prayers that are often enunciated separately are said altogether. The Feldman boys decided that this day would be linked to Mrs. Cooperman's legacy, and from then on this date was known to them as Mrs. Cooperman's Shabbat. Even now, he writes, when such a date comes to pass. The brothers call each other to mark the moment. However, he writes, quote, our laughter is of a different kind now. She no longer provokes the giggles of mischievous young boys, but rather smiles of appreciation and illumination. Now we realize that while she may have been ignorant of the subtleties and nuances of Torah learning, she possessed something that we utterly lack then and probably still lack now, devotion, surrender, and childlike innocence before the presence of God. We were too young to understand that in the torrent of words she poured out before the Creator every Shabbat morning, there lay a key ingredient of worship. She didn't know the translation of those words, but in a much deeper sense she understood their meaning. She brought to her praying a total submission of the self before the presence of God. A love for her Creator so consuming that she could not bear to pass over a single word of his holy Sidur. She worshipped God not from knowledge or intellect, but from an inner spirit that transcends the mind. She did not know the proofs for the existence of God, but she needed none. For God was not an abstraction, but a reality. 
She had no idea of the philosophical underpinnings of prayer. But when she said, Baruch Atah, she knew she was talking to her personal creator and that he was listening. End quote. It is perhaps all too rare a gift to intimately encounter the Almighty in so personal a manner. But if the Feldmans are in awe, it is because they, today very learned rabbis, understand how Mrs. Cooperman illustrates that this intimate encounter is open to all, both those learned and those less so, and that indeed Mrs. Cooperman's spiritual awareness was more profound than many more learned than she. If this is the case, then what this righteous woman teaches us about prayer is important to consider as we turn to the end of prophecy and the new birth of prayer that occurred at that point amidst the Jewish people. Malachi, or Malachi, a word which means my messenger, is the name given to a prophet who, according to rabbinic tradition, was the last of the prophets. Much of Malachi's book is directed toward the priests that serve in the second temple, a temple that now, thanks to the efforts of Haggai and Zechariah, has been fully built. Despite the seeming success, Malachi stresses that the priests are not enthusiastic enough about their role within the sacred, that they are lacking devotion, and that this, in turn, pollutes the very offerings that they bring. Chapter 1, verse 7. Ye offer polluted bread upon mine altar, and ye say, Wherein have we polluted thee? And that ye say, The table of the Lord is contemptible. In the next chapter, Malachi turns to what he asserts is the ideal role for the priests in society, urging the Kohanim, the priests, to embrace their destiny. Verse 4. And ye shall know that I have sent this commandment unto you, that my covenant might be with Levi, saith the Lord of hosts. My covenant was with him of life and peace, and I gave them to him for the fear wherewith he feared me and was afraid before my name. The law of truth was in his mouth, and iniquity was not found in his lips. He walked with me in peace and equity, and did turn many away from iniquity. For the priest's lips should keep knowledge, and they should seek the law at his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. Thus does Malachi call on the Kohanim, the priesthood, to truly become spiritual leaders. And yet these verses are striking because the emphasis here is not only on the temple priests engaging in ritual, but serving as teachers of Torah. As Ritzvi Sinensky has rightly noted, this emphasis on teaching reflects the phenomenon that prophecy itself is coming to a close, and that the prophet is emphasizing how now it is the teaching of Torah by the spiritual representatives of the temple and of Israel that will be so necessary to inspiring and instructing Israel. The end of prophecy is not explicitly mentioned in the book, but must have been hanging over every word the prophet uttered. And when we ponder this, we realize what an enormous spiritual challenge it must have marked for the people. For centuries, God had spoken through his elected messengers. Now, suddenly, that communication was coming to a close. If this is the case, we may ponder Malachi's emphasis on everyday Torah teaching, which is joined in the end of his book with expectation of the ultimate return of a prophet and the arrival of the final redemption. Chapter 4, verse 4. Remember ye the law of Moses my servant, which I commanded unto him in Chorib for all Israel, with the statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send you with Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord, and he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children, and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. Learn Torah, but also look forward to and expect the end of days, the redemption that will be announced by Elijah, the eschatological era yet to come. This is Jewish life, keeping the faith in the world, but always ever aware of what is yet to come, believing in the traditional Jewish expression, with complete faith in the ultimate coming of the Messiah. Thus do Malachi's words come to a close. And in considering that he was the last prophet and how he lived at the dawn of the Second Temple era, 
we must ponder what follows next in the Tanakh. For traditional Jews, Malachi's words conclude the second part of the Bible, known as Nevi'im, prophets. Immediately after that, we turn to the Ketuvim, the writings, a name that describes scriptural books composed without prophecy, but with some form of sacred inspiration. Considering the time period in which Malachi speaks, it would seem logical that the first book of the writings, the first book to follow Malachi, should be Ezra, the discussion of all that occurred in the early Second Temple period. But no, in the traditional Jewish ordering of the Tanakh, it is the Psalms that come after Malachi. It is the Psalms that we, in Bible 365, will study next. Why is this the traditional order of the biblical corpus? It is here that we can perhaps suggest something new, based on the writings of Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik. According to the Talmud, it was at this point in time that a mysterious group of Jewish leaders known as the Anshe Knesset Hagdolah, the men of the Great Assembly, led by Ezra, formalized the rituals and liturgy of communal Jewish prayer. For Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik, this was a response to the end of prophecy, for it is prayer that is prophecy's parallel. Both prayer and prophecy involve an intimate encounter with the divine presence. Both involve communication between human being and God. The difference, of course, is that with biblical prophecy, it is the Almighty that takes the initiative. God engages a select few in calling out to man. With prayer, in contrast, anyone can encounter the Almighty if he or she truly takes the initiative with a full heart. As Rabbi Soloveitchik put it, quote, while within the prophetic community God takes the initiative, he speaks and man listens. In the prayer community, the initiative belongs to man. He does the speaking and God the listening. The word of prophecy is God's and is accepted by man. The word of prayer is man's and God accepts it, end quote. The stressing of Jewish prayer by the men of the great assembly, Rabbi Soloveitchik further argues, was a response to the end of prophecy, an insistence that the connection between God and man must still continue. Rabbi Soloveitchik put it this way, in what is rightly one of the celebrated and sublime passages of his great work, The Lonely Man of Faith. Quote, At a later date, when the mysterious men of this wondrous assembly witnessed the bright summer day of the prophetic community, full of color and sound, turning to a bleak autumnal night of dreadful silence unillumined by the vision of God or made homely by his voice, they refused to acquiesce in this cruel historical reality and would not let the ancient dialogue between God and men come to an end. For the men of the great assembly knew that with the withdrawal of the colloquy from the field of consciousness of the Judaic community, the latter would lose the intimate companionship of God and consequently its covenantal status. In prayer, they found the salvation of the colloquy, which, they insisted, must go on forever. If God had stopped calling man, they urged, let man call God. And so the covenantal colloquy was shifted from the level of prophecy to that of prayer. End quote. So Rabbi Soloveitchik wrote, and we are now perhaps able to suggest why it is the book of Psalms that follows the book of the last prophet. The lesson, perhaps, to paraphrase Rabbi Soloveitchik, is that if God stops calling man, man must call God. And as we shall see, it is the Psalms that show us how God can be called, how the Almighty can be encountered, in every aspect of our lives. It is the Psalms that give the Jews the ultimate book of prayer, of communication with the divine. And it is perhaps for this reason that the Psalms became such a beloved book in Jewish history. But if prayer is the solution to the end of prophecy, there are all too few that truly embody its intimacy. And Mrs. Cooperman was one of those fortunate few. And so we proceed our study of Psalms 
and bring this episode to a conclusion with Rabbi Feldman's final thoughts about his childhood acquaintance, reflecting on how important different times are for communal liturgical prayer, and yet how rare Mrs. Cooperman truly was. Rabbi Soloveitchik reflects how, quote, while we certainly may approach God at any time with any words of our own, the words of the Sidur are sacred because, stemming from the men of the Great Assembly, they reflect the changing divine human connectedness of different religious seasons of the year that may not be shifted and molded according to our momentary whims. But when Mrs. Cooperman appeared before her Maker, who is not constrained by the mortal boundaries and limitations of clocks and calendars, and for whom time is an indivisible entity, I like to think that perhaps he did not look with disfavor upon the seamless, timeless universe of his loyal servant, Mrs. Cooperman. End quote. This is Mayor Soloveitchik, wishing you a Shabbat Shalom and looking forward to starting the Psalms with you next week. Signing off.